Well, good morning, Promontory. It is good to be with you this morning. It's our first time visiting up here. We're able to find the campus no problem because you've got signage everywhere. So it's wonderful. Um, here with my family, uh, my wife Amanda is seated right there in the third row, and then we've got three kids, Micah, Joel, and Kennedy. Uh, they're off in Kidsmen right now, but yeah, great to be here. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing the pulpit, Jonathan, and, and happy to let you take a week off uh, this Sunday. So to start off this sermon, I want you to picture in your head an angel for me, okay? You got it? Chances are some or many of you are picturing uh, a blonde, levitating man with a round, sparkly halo dressed in a white robe. Anyone? There are a couple. Yeah, there are at least a few. So halos are nowhere found in the Bible. Uh, In fact, the description that we get of angels in the Bible is pretty contrary Uh, We read just this morning in our Advent reading about uh, one angel appearance. So far in Luke, we're going to be spending time in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Uh, We've had two other angelic appearances, uh, one to Zechariah, one to Mary. And the response is always the same. The recipient freaks out, and the angel has to calm the person down, right? Fear not. Well, that's because... Angels may have looked something like this. That, that's what you're picturing, right? This is kind of a, uh, a model of what an angel might look like based on a description we get from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. So it's no surprise if, if this is what an angel might look like that, you know, one of our favorite Christmas movie actor's response to Angel would have been something like this. Next picture, please. There we go. Oh, go back one. Arriving in heaven, nice smile, seeing what angels actually look like. (laughs) Poor guy, hey? Here's another one just for kicks. Angels, be not afraid. Also angels. Ah! Terrifying. I'd be afraid if that thing showed up in my house, too. (laughs) Anyways, that's just some fun to get us started. This morning, we're going to be spending time in Luke uh, 2, verses 8 to 20, uh, taking a look at, you know, a a grand angelic announcement and then shepherd's response uh, to that announcement. So I'd like to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Luke 2, verses 8 to 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for coming to earth, uh, being born in humble circumstances, uh, even though you are the Savior. Um, Father, as we spend some time in your word here, I pray that uh, you would speak to us by your spirit, God. Um, Encourage us, challenge us, conform us into your image, Jesus. We love you, commit this time to you, and pray it all in your great name. Amen. You may have your seats. Thank you. So this morning, from our text, I want to show us three different responses uh, based on the text and then also taking a look at how the shepherds responded to this angelic announcement and to the birth of Christ. So the first response that this text compels us to is to embrace humility. So Luke Uh, 2 verses 8 to 20 is a bit like a 13 verse oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron, it's typically two words that should not go together. So jumbo shrimp or civil war or generous Mennonite, you know, things like that, right? Ooh, no Mennonites in the crowd today, right? No. So We've got this, this magnificent, grand announcement that the angels make, and then this, this humble reception for our Savior. So I want to show you a few different factors that um, magnify each one of those, that accentuate the magnificent announcement with Christ's lowly birth. So first of all, Jesus' birth isn't just put out there by a human messenger, but it's announced by an angel, Right? Any of you had a, a physical angel visitation in your lifetime? I don't see any hands. This is an important thing that's happening, especially when an, an angel comes to announce it. Then we're told that uh, this angelic announcement, he comes and says that this is something for all people. Now, we've had all sorts of things going on here in the Fraser Valley lately with floods and mudslides. You know, news of this has spread across Canada, even gone to other countries around the world. But this news doesn't necessarily have a direct impact for other people around the world. But the news that this angel brings, you know, directly impacts all people. Moreover, it's it's news about the Savior, Christ the Lord. You know, when a prince is born in England, there's all sorts of fanfare and and cannons that are shot and, and media. But that's just for a prince. This is for 
God himself who's being born here on earth. Moreover, this news was not brought by just one angel, such as, for example, the birth of John the Baptist was announced by one angel to Zechariah, but we have the initial announcement by the one angel, but then a multitude of angels, thousands of angels in the sky before these shepherds. If we thought they were scared by one angel, imagine thousands of them before you with the glory of the Lord. But in contrast to the grandeur of this announcement of Christ's birth, we've got these lowly, humble conditions in which Christ is born into. This incredible announcement comes not to kings or or queens or military leaders or even priests, but it comes to lowly shepherds. Let me read you a a quote from the Tyndale New Testament commentary. It says, as a class, shepherds actually had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. They were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in law courts. Now, Scripture doesn't present these shepherds as, you know, Thieves are unreliable. In fact, in other places in Scripture, we're given a good presentation of shepherds. But they would have been one of the lowliest classes at their time. And then we have the location of Christ's birth, right? He's not born in a modern-day equivalent of, of New York or Ottawa or Vancouver. He's not born in Jerusalem. He's born in Bethlehem. Just this little back town. We might think of it as an equivalent of our spasm, you know, beyond hope. (laughs) Some of you got that. (laughs) Found that on Google. I can't take credit for it. Uh, Listen to what the Old Testament Micah, Old Testament prophet Micah had to say. Micah 5.2 about Bethlehem. He writes, prophesying way before Christ's birth, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus is born in this this tiny little town, too small to be considered in the clans of Israel. And despite this ruler being God himself, (laughs) this continually baffles me. He takes on the form of a human baby. Um, My wife and I, three children, right? We know how helpless babies are. They can do nothing for themselves. And yet, that's the form that Christ takes. This baby boy, born likely to a teenage mother and father. What humility. And finally, Jesus, God himself, is not born into a palace where he can sleep his first night on a cushioned, warmed, hypoallergenic bed, but he spends his first night in a manger, right? Having been born in in a stable or a cave. These are such humble conditions. Listen to an exhortation that Paul makes in his letter to the Philippians, speaking of the humility of Christ in his birth. This is Philippians 2, 5 to 7. 
starting right at the end of verse 5. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Though Jesus is this glorious, all-powerful Son of God Almighty, he chooses to come to us in the humblest of ways. Eleven years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. Went there for about 10 days and got to see a lot of the countryside, you know, Jerusalem, Capernaum, Dead Sea, all of that. Uh, it was a fascinating experience as it really put into perspective, especially the Gospels. Uh, the one day, uh, a friend that I made there and I, we traveled to Bethlehem, which is not far from Jerusalem where we were staying. And one of the, the tourist destinations there is a Catholic church called the Church of the Nativity. I have a picture here that I took uh, 11 years ago. Um, it's a pretty neat church, lots of rock. It's been there for hundreds of years. Uh, it is supposedly built over the actual birthplace of Christ, uh, which I highly, highly, highly doubt. Uh, you go in and then basically right underneath where the, the stage would be, there's a staircase that comes around the one side and then you go down underneath and there's this little round hole with like a star around it and what almost looks like a fireplace and, you know, saw people kneeling there and praying and then you'd come up and out around the other side. Um, I wasn't too impressed by all that. Uh, you know, it struck me as fairly fictitious. But what did stick with me was the door to the church. See, there wasn't some big double gate door, but there's actually, if we go to the next slide, just a small opening, maybe about four feet tall in the rock wall of the church. And they have a name for this door. They call it the door of humility. And the thought behind it is that, you know, Christ, our glorious almighty God, humbled himself to such an extent when he was born. Now as, as we come into his presence or into what may have been the location where he was born, that we need to humble ourselves, that we need to bow and we need to stoop before him. It's an appropriate response, is it not? God Almighty, us weak, frail, sinful human beings. That's our call in life as we approach God, as we approach Christ, to bow before him, to worship him, to declare our need for him, to recognize our sinfulness and repent of our sin and, and trust in his forgiveness. But we're also called to humble ourselves in our approach before others as well. Going back to a couple of verses of Paul's uh, in that same letter to the Philippians, he urges that if we have any relationship with Christ, um, any joy or participation in the Spirit, 
that we respond in humility to others as well. Philippians 2, 3 to 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does humility look like? Well, those verses, they begin to give us a good picture. Looks like putting others' needs and desires before our own. Looks like serving others. It looks like sacrificially loving others. Looks a lot like Jesus. This passage calls us to embrace humility in our response to God and our response to one another. But a second response that this text calls us to, and one modeled by the shepherds, is to make Jesus known. Let me read verses 15 to 17 for us. So when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So after this angelic multitude goes back into heaven, the shepherds responded to what the Lord had made known to them. And they go and they they check it out. They go to Bethlehem. They find that things are exactly as the angel had said they would be. They find Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But notice that they didn't drag their feet on this, right? They didn't say, oh, you know what? Let's first set up our sheep. We'll get them situated. And then, you know, maybe next week or the week after, then we'll go and check out this baby. No, they go right away. Then notice that specifically after they find Jesus, they go and then they make known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So what was that saying? Well, take a look at verses 10 and 11. It's what the angel had told them. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy for all people. The Savior has been born. For many of us, it's been uh, years since we've been out of school, but I want to bring us back to English class Any of you like English? I hated it. Math is so much easier. Two plus two is always four. You know, English, you write an essay, you could go a million different directions. We'll spend a little bit of time doing some English study. Grammar in particular. So, question for you. What kind of words are the words good news? Any answers? If you're thinking in your heads, you know, an adjective and a noun, 
You are incorrect. Okay, you're actually correct, but in the Greek, you're incorrect, right? Jonathan's probably way ahead of me on this. So those two words, good news, and actually previous verb, bring, all translate this Greek word, um, euangeliso, this good news or gospel, right? And it's not a noun. It's actually a verb. That whole piece is a verb. And the whole point is that this good news is not something that we can just, you know, wrap up and, and put in a nice tidy box or, you know, stick it in a jar and just store it on a shelf. But it's meant to be shared. We, we cannot keep it to ourselves. This was the case for what, uh, sorry. And the other thing about this is that I feel like often we, we hesitate in sharing the gospel, right? We, we don't know what people's response might be. You know, will they, will they laugh at us? Will they just, I don't know, turn the other way? Will they want nothing to do with us? But this good news is something that throughout Scripture, we're called to share with others. This is the example of, of the shepherds. In Luke 2.18, we're told that uh, as they go from there, um, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So they were clearly going and telling people as they went that, you know, this angel told us this great news of the Savior that was born. And then we went and we checked it out. And guess what? It's true. Throughout the year, I feel like there are two primary wider doors to sharing the gospel. Because even as a North American culture, secular culture, we still celebrate two Christian holidays, and that being Easter and Christmas. I just so want to encourage you this Christmas, you know, even if it's once, step through that door and take advantage of that opportunity. Start a conversation with, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a stranger. Ask them what their thoughts are on, on Christmas, on the birth of Christ. You don't necessarily need to come out, you know, guns blaring. Ask them, what do they think? What do they make of Christ? And the thing is, we just, you don't know what their response will be, right? They may not shoot you down. They, they may wonder about what you have to share. They might ask you questions. They might shoot you down and then later wonder personally. But this good news of the birth of Christ is something that's meant to be shared. The third response this text calls us to is to glorify God. Uh, this is some kind of cool stuff. I want to show you how the entirety of this text, Luke 2, verses 8, all the way to 20, actually makes one point. It's all structured to point to one thing. So pretend you're in English class again. This is called a chiasm. It's a literary structure using a pattern of repetition to point to a main thing. So we all like food. So think of a juicy hamburger, okay? So on either 
end of your hamburger, you've got a half of a bun, right? They kind of mirror each other. Then you might have part of a condiment on either side of that bun, maybe, I don't know, some spicy aioli mayo on the one side and some Dijon mustard on the other side. You might have some other things. But all those things are pointing to that nice, homemade, juicy beef patty in the middle, right? That's what you're really going for there. If you had your burger without that patty, something would be missing, right? You'd you'd be disappointed. So I want to show you how this passage all points to this one thing in the center. So we start out uh, with the shepherd's entrance in Luke 2, verse 8. We'll get that first point which is mirrored at the bottom in Luke 2.20 with the shepherd's exit. These are kind of the bun of archaism. As we move closer to the middle, we've got a message for all people. This is the, the angelic announcement that comes to the shepherds. And then we also have in Luke 2.18-19 that it's a message for all people. Verse 18, we're told that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary, she pondered it. This news was for everyone. Moving in farther, we have the saying about the child. In verse 11, we have the angel declaring, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in 17, we talk about how the shepherds made known the saying. Moving in a step closer, we've got a baby lying in a manger, first referred to by the angel and then discovered by the shepherds as they go and find Jesus with Mary and Joseph. Moving in one step closer, we have the angel's entrance of that multitude that comes and just declares to them uh, this message. And then we have that the angels disappear. And all of this points to verse 14, pointing to the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Ultimately, even the birth of Christ points to the glory of God. This is meant to be the purpose of our lives, and yet, how often do we fall short? Imagine for a second that, you know, and in several minutes, you leave this place, but as you're driving home, you discover something odd going on in the roadways out there. Everyone that you see driving on the road is driving in reverse. You know, you, you head down promontory, and people are going up and down the mountain in reverse. And then maybe make your way down Vetter Road, Again, it's, they're, they're not on the wrong side of the road. They're on the right side of the road traveling the right way, but they're going in reverse. You go to Highway 1, and again, everyone's going in reverse. You see, God has created us for his glory, but we can choose to live for our own. And that can work, but does not work well. You cannot drive as fast or as well going 
in reverse than you can driving forward the way that a vehicle was designed to function. Similarly, we can make our lives revolve around us or different idols in our lives, but things work best when we live our lives the way that we were designed to live. The thing I love about this text is the way in which God uses seemingly insignificant things and people and situations to point to that which is most significant. God uses shepherds, right, as the recipients of his grand announcement of Christ's birth. And then he uses them to go and proclaim that, to be the first evangelists of the birth of the Messiah. He continues to do that today. Each one of us, regardless of how, you know, how wealthy we might think we are, how strong, how gifted intellectually, we're weak, frail, finite people who just completely pale in comparison to our great God. And yet... We can find hope as we seek to live our lives for the glory of God because God uses the weak, right? He makes them strong. He uses them for his glory. This is a comfort for me, serving as a pastor at Central, so often feeling inadequate, even standing here before you this morning, praying that God would use this, but at the end of the day, knowing that it's, it's not up to me, but God works in and through me. God works in and through his people as we seek to live for his glory. Verse 20 recounts how the shepherds left Jesus' side that day. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. I want to challenge you that as you go back home today, as we leave this worship service, go back to our families, work this week, whatever is before you, that we'd take that sort of a response, that we would go glorifying and praising God for he is worthy, he is glorious. In doing so, let us follow the example of Christ, our Lord and Savior who was born, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, making a way for you and for I to be saved through our repentance and placing our faith in him, and then rose again from the grave, all ultimately to bring God glory. Let me close with Paul's words, again from Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.
God, I'm so grateful for the way in which you're able to use the lowly, the seemingly insignificant, uh, to point to you, God, to point to the only significant. Thank you, Jesus, for humbling yourself, uh, being born, taking on flesh, and then living a perfect life and, and taking our place on the cross, paying the penalty of our sins. God, as, as we live here on earth, um, I pray that you would strengthen us each and every day and help us to, to live for your glory in all we do, God, our, our actions, our words, our thought life. May we point to you. May we point people to your son, Jesus. We love you dearly, and we pray all these things in your great name. Amen.